This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au It's working? Yeah, it's working. Great. Great. How you guys doing? Asleep? How you guys doing? Doing alright? Alright, because you're going to have to, I know it's Saturday afternoon, I feel like snoozing as well, so you're just going to have to help me out a little bit with the engagement, um, help me to bring the word this, this I was going to say this morning, but this afternoon, also Stephanie wanted me to say, guys, why does no one sit down the front, I have four perfectly good seats here, and we're spread out to the edges, so if anyone wants to come and grab these seats, feel free, but if you're taking notes, talk two is called The Way Grace Changes Us. The way grace changes us. I know Mitch already prayed, but I want to pray too, so let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for your graciousness. As we heard about earlier this morning, I want to thank you for your goodness and your kindness. And that you don't leave us as we are, Lord, but you change us. And you call us to draw near to you to be changed. And so I thank you, Father, for your goodness that we've already seen this weekend in everything that you're doing in us and amongst us. And I pray, Father, for the work that you have begun on this weekend, that through this session, Lord, as we continue looking at your word, that you would continue, continue that work, Father. Uh, do a deeper work in us, Lord. Do a more transformative work in us. Uh, we need your help, Lord, to receive what it is that you have for us. I need your help, Lord, to preach and so. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do. Um, would you blow through this room? In Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Well, I want to tell you guys about uh, a friend of mine, <coughs> or a former friend, who I used to know. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call him Charlie, because of some of the details that I'm going to share with you. Uh, and Charlie is a guy I knew who, he grew up, he grew up, um, with multiple stays going through juvie, so juvenile detention, and a history of getting into trouble, crime, <coughs> theft, assault. And all throughout his adolescent years, as he was going through teenage years, he would just get into trouble time and time again. He had this checkered past, this checkered history. And he came into my life through a mutual friend uh, when I was leading a young adults community group. And my mutual friend brought him along, and he came, and he loved it, he enjoyed the community, um, he loved the fellowship and the meals that we shared together, and you could tell that he really wanted to change. Um, he wanted to be a different person. Uh, he wanted to leave his past behind, but for whatever reason, he just really struggled. He struggled to let go of who he had been for so long of his life. The years that he had lived, the things that he had done, his tendencies, the temptations, his ways of thinking even that were ingrained in him, he struggled to leave his old life behind. <coughs> and his old life was so ingrained in his identity that it wasn't long before he wound up in jail. And it's just really sad because he'd come into our lives and <coughs> we'd gotten to know him and we'd seen his internal wrestle, like this struggle of like, I want to be a different person. 
but I just can't seem to find freedom from who I have been, who I was. And so he kept living out his old identity because he believed that's who he still was. He kept living out his old identity because when he thought of himself, his perception was this is who I am. I'm this kind of person who does these types of things, who gets into trouble like this. Thank you, Jono. (laughs) And for many of us, this is the pattern of our spiritual life. We get saved. We hear about what God has done for us. We hear about who we are in Jesus. We hear about this new identity that we have, how amazing it is that it's a free gift. And we hear about what God wants to draw us into. But our difficulty is that we just find it so hard to leave behind who we have been. And so often we live in such a way that how we live our days is dictated by how we see ourselves. And we don't see ourselves in the new identity in Christ that we have. And so because we don't know how to see ourselves, we don't know how to walk in this new life. We don't, how to, we don't know how to live as these new people. We struggle to let go of who we were. And it's deeper than just behaviors. It's mindsets. It's attitudes. It's inner beliefs in our very core about who we are deep down below the surface. And so the question is, how do we change? You know, we heard a message this morning, the first talk, about cheap grace and about all that God invites us into and who we are through Him. And now the question is, how do we walk that out? How do we change? What are the tools for change? How does grace change us? Because you know what? I believe it does. I believe grace does change us. I believe grace does have the power to fully transform who we are, and not just on an intellectual level, but deep down into the core of our beliefs, of our values, of our identity to shape our lives from the inside out. And so how do we change and how does grace change us? If you've got a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be spending the whole of this sermon in that passage. And this is the question that Paul seeks to address in Romans chapter 6. So Romans 6, starting in verse 1. Just give you a few seconds to get there for those who are still flicking there. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And the first thing I want you to see is the way that grace changes us is by giving us a new identity and a new life. Grace changes us by giving us a new identity and a new life. Read with me in this text. And so Paul begins by saying, Romans 6 verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? And I want you to pay careful attention to exactly what Paul is saying. Because he really spells it out. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism 
into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so what's happening here? We did a series on Romans a couple of years ago, and Romans 6 falls a few chapters after Paul has unpacked the gospel, and he's talked about how we're justified through Christ. It's not of our own doing. It's the free gift of God that comes through the redemption of his son. And after he's unpacked the gospel, Paul goes on to address this question of cheap grace that we're asking this week. And he says, well, since we've got grace, should we just keep on sinning? Should we do whatever we want? Because we have this grace, right? We have this safety net. So does it really matter how we live? And he emphatically says, no, by no means we shall not go on sinning so that grace may increase. And I'm sure you already understand that. But what's interesting is the rationale that Paul gives for his answer. Why does Paul say by no means? Is it because we're Christians, we're really good moral people, so we don't do X, Y, and Z anymore? Uh, is it because, you know, if you do these things, you're going to feel guilty, so you better just stop doing it so you feel better about yourself? No, notice the answer that Paul gives. It's not rooted in guilt. It's not rooted in legalism or religiosity or duty. His rationale is rooted in identity. Have a look there in verse 2. By no means, we are those who? We are those who have died to sin, so how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were, what? Verse 4, therefore buried with him through baptism into new life. Sorry, into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so Paul's reasoning here, it's not about behavior modification. It's not about religiosity. It's not about legalism. It's not about morality. His reasoning here is 100% all to do with identity. It's about who you are. Now, when you think about identity, identity is so much more than what we just know to be true. And this morning, I, I started to talk a little bit about how we can intellectualize our faith. Not that there's anything wrong with having knowledge, because we need knowledge, don't we, to know what God is like and to understand the Bible. So there's nothing wrong with understanding, but identity goes deeper than just understanding. When I think of who I am, I'm James Wong. I'm an Australian-born Chinese. I'm married to Katie. It's more than just facts about me, these deep things that form who I am. It's in my blood. It's in my DNA. It's in my ethnicity. It's in the covenants that I've made. And this is the same for you. When we talk about identity, it's not just about what you know to be true. It's about who you actually are, the reality of what has happened when you have been united with Christ. And so if you are in Jesus this afternoon, I want to remind you and point you to the fact that if you are in him, which just means if you believe in him, if you have faith in him, if you are following him, then what the Bible says is you have been united with him in his death and in his resurrection. So this is a spiritual reality that has actually happened to you. 
just as real as Jesus actually bodily, physically went to the cross and was crucified and then was buried and then three days later was raised from the dead, this same reality has happened to you. And so grace gives us a new identity. It unites us with Jesus himself. So those who have faith in Christ are united with him. To try and help us understand this a bit further, I got a quote up on the screen from a guy called Sinclair Ferguson, just a really smart guy who writes about the Bible and stuff like that. And um, this is what he says about being united with Christ. He says, if we are united to Christ, then we are united to him at all points of his activity on our behalf. So this means we share in his death, we were baptized into his death, in his resurrection, we are resurrected with Christ, in his ascension, we have been raised with him, and some of these phrases, they might sound familiar because a lot of them get hit on in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, which we've just looked at the last few weeks on Sundays. In his heavenly session, we sit with him in heavenly places so that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we will share in his promised return. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's so much more than getting a ticket to heaven, than prescribing to a certain set of beliefs and believing a certain worldview. It's being united with Christ. Everything that has happened to Jesus has happened to you spiritually. And so since Jesus has, through his death, died to sin, that means so have you. And so we can't continue living in sin because through Jesus, we're actually dead to it. And what happens when you die to something? When you die to something, it no longer has any control over you. It no longer has any mastery over you. It no longer has any say over what you do or how you do it or when you do it or what you should do. <coughs> One of my favorite movie franchises um, is The Fast and the Furious. Reveals a lot about me. And uh, don't judge me for those who just think, you know, they're just crap and full of nonsense and lots of action. That, but that's basically what they are. And that's pretty much why I like it. And in the Fast and Furious movies, you know, this, the franchise st has started off as it's all about car racing and then it kind of evolves into they're solving crimes and they're doing like police work and stuff like that. And the crew, led by Vin Diesel and Paul Walker, they're always trying to escape from the United States. They're always trying to get outside the United States to some random country like in South America or Mexico or Panama or something. Why? Because they want to go somewhere that has no extradition laws, which means that basically the United States government has no jurisdiction, it has no authority over those countries. And so they want to escape to these countries because they know, you know, since we've committed so many crimes and stolen millions of dollars and all of this stuff, if we get to these countries, we won't be under the jurisdiction of the United States anymore, we'll be free from their control. And for people who belong to Christ, you are outside the jurisdiction of sin. Sin no longer has any say over your life. It doesn't have to rule or dominate you. It doesn't have to influence you in such a way 
as to lead you into temptation. Now, that doesn't mean that sin has no power. It doesn't mean that we're not still sinful people who are prone to being tempted, who are prone to weakness. But what it means is that through Jesus, we actually have the power through grace to overcome sin. I wonder if anyone ever told you that before. Like, I I think sometimes in church, we get so caught up talking about how broken we are and how sinful we are that we get this defeatist attitude, which is just like, oh, did that thing again. Like, oh, went too far with my girlfriend again. Oh, drank too much again. Oh, lied again. Oh, gossiped again. Oh, but I'm a sinner. Like, there's nothing I could do. And while we are sinful and while we are broken, through grace and through dying to sin, sin doesn't have the power over us anymore. We actually have the power to say no to sin. Like, get some of that in your diet. And so my question is, do you understand that this has happened to you? Do you understand that if you have faith in Jesus, that you are united with him in his death and in his resurrection? You are as dead to sin as Jesus is. And sin has no mastery over Christ. It has no power over Christ. Do you understand that being a Christian is more than just subscribing to a certain set of ideas, choosing to believe a certain worldview? It's about being united in relationship to Christ, the one who is the source of not just our salvation, but the power for our sanctification, which means the power to help us live holy lives that are pleasing to God, that are radically different, that don't take grace for granted. Jesus is our source. And this union, this union with Christ that we share, if you are in him, is as real as my union with my wife, as your union as a parent to your, to, with, with your children. That's how real this union is. However, this new identity, it doesn't just include sharing in Jesus' death, but it also includes sharing in Jesus' life. Go back to the passage with me. In verse 5, as we continue reading, Romans 6, verse 5, Paul says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, it's just what he's been talking about in the first four verses, then we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That's what we've just been talking about that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin and that is you if you are in Christ. In verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe what? That we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died... He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So what Paul's saying here is that through our union with Christ, through being in Christ, through being united with him, we're not only united with him in his death, but also in his resurrection. For those who've been baptized This is the symbolism of baptism. 
that as you're immersed, as you're lowered into the water, that signifies that you're sharing in Christ's death as he died and was buried in the ground. And as you're pulled out of the water and raised up, that signifies the new life as Christ was raised from the dead three days later. Baptism is a symbol of unity with Christ. And so just as we've died to sin, because he's died to sin, so too we receive eternal life, and one day we will experience the resurrection that he has already experienced. Isn't that crazy? One day you, if you're in Christ, though your earthly body will die once, and you will experience death once and for one time, you will be raised in glory, resurrected just as Jesus was, never to die again. He cannot die again. And after we die once and are raised, we will never die again either. I can't even wrap my head around that. What? And so you see, this is the way that grace changes us. It gives us a new identity. Being united with Christ is the treasure of the gospel. And this is who you are if you have faith in God. If you have faith in Jesus and what he's done for you. Your primary identity is not whatever your name is and what you did at uni, what your job is now, how you currently see yourself, who you're married to, your preferences. No, your dominant identity is one who has died with Christ and been raised with Christ. And so this is why we don't live lives of cheap grace. This is why we don't play around with sin, pushing the boundaries, think how much can we get away with? Oh, it doesn't really matter. I'll just like go to church tomorrow and then in worship, I'll just confess and then I'll be sweet. But we don't do these things because we're dead to sin. It's not part of, it doesn't have to be part of how we live anymore, though we still will sin. I'm not saying we're going to be perfect, but we don't let it rule over us. We don't let it reign over us. We don't let it dominate us. We don't approach it and see it with this defeatist attitude like, oh, I'm just a sinner and that's why I can't break this cycle. No, through Jesus we are dead to sin but alive to God both now and forever. So the first way that grace changes us is it gives us a new life, a new identity and a new life. And the second way is grace gives us a new master and grace gives us a new purpose. Grace gives us a new master and grace gives us a new purpose. And here Paul starts to delve into what does this mean for us? If this is our identity, if we are those who in Christ have died with him and been raised, then what does this mean for us? What does it look like for us? And this is where it gets so important for us to understand that the way we change is both through what God has done for us already, who he's made us to be positionally, what our identity is, but then our cooperation with his spirit as we live that out. See, there's different parts, different tribes in Christianity who 
maybe they want to make it all about one or the other. Like on the one hand, it's like everything's about what God has done and you don't do anything. And so we just sit there and we're like, God, change me. God, change me. God, please change me. God, change me. But we don't actually walk out what it means to be this new people. And then there's this other whole tribe who put all the emphasis on us. So it's all about us. It's about what you do. It's all on you. It's all up to you. You have to make it happen. But the Christian faith is not like that. The Christian faith is one of tensions where we hold together two things that are true. One being our identity in Christ, what he's done for us, who God has made us, and then how we live in response to that as we walk out that tension. So have a look with me in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 10. We're just waking our way through this passage. And I love how Paul, he just, he tells us exactly what it is. Like, I don't need to explain it that much. We just need to read it and comprehend. And so grace gives us a new master and a new purpose. Paul says in verse 10, the death he died, so the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, in the same way as Jesus who died to sin once for all and now lives for God, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so see yourself in that way. Believe that. That as you think about yourself, you are someone who you are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. Verse 14, For sin shall no longer be your master. (laughs) Isn't that good news? Because you are not under the law, but under grace. So Paul says in verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So remember that this is who you are. That's what Paul's saying. Here's the first nine verses. I've told you what has happened to you because you're in Christ. I've told you who you are now because of what Jesus has done. And now because of that, here's what you ought to do. Here's how you ought to live. So verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign. Don't let it rule. Don't let it reign. So that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Did you know that you can offer yourself to sin or you can offer yourself to God? That you can offer yourself as an instrument of wickedness or you can offer yourself as an instrument of righteousness. Offer offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. And so because grace has freed us from sin, And because sin is no longer our master, we just have no obligation to serve it. So offer yourself to God. Offer yourself to God. 
That's what Paul says. And so as I move towards my close, I want to point us to three things to take away from this passage. And I encourage you, if you're not familiar with this passage, when you go home from this weekend, sit in this passage. Read it. Meditate on it. Ask God to show you. Like, even if you don't really get this, like, the whole identity thing, you're like, yeah, I kind of get it. But, yeah. like, God, like, give me a revelation by your spirit of what this means for me, of who I am. I've been a Christian, like, my whole life, and it's only the last couple of years that I've really come to understand the depths of what it means to be united with Christ. And I don't even think I'm close to, like, reaching the bottom of understanding that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm in the kiddie pool. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just discovered this. So good being in Christ. So there's three things I want us to take away from these verses. So here's our application. First thing, living under grace involves an active resistance against sin and an active submission to God. Living under grace, living as people who have been made new in Christ, it requires an active resistance against sin and an active submission to God. Notice the word active. And what this means for us is two things. The first thing is we just need to get over wanting things to be organic. Like, does anyone hear me on that? Like, we just need to get over things needing to be organic. It's like we, we, we're the age of, like, everything has to happen organically, otherwise it's not genuine. And, uh, you know, I don't want to do it. Friendships have to happen and form organically. It's like in chat time, I'm not going to go talk to that person because that's forced. And if it's forced, then it's not authentic, right? Like, oh, I, w- I want to get married one day and, and meet this amazing Christian man or woman, but it has to happen spontaneously and organically. Otherwise, it's not from God. Like, we have this obsession with everything has to be organic, and we just need to get over that. Secondly, we need to mature from, I just don't feel like doing it. Like, I just don't feel like reading my Bible today. I just didn't really feel like going to church and gathering with God's people. Like, I knew it would be good for me, but I didn't feel like it, so that's why I didn't do it. Like, I just don't feel like, you know, obeying God and listening to Him. And, like, don't mishear me on this. I understand that this is, this is all of us. Like, this is me too. Like, I want things to be organic, and I don't like doing things I don't feel like doing. Like, multiple times in the week, so in our household, um, we kind of split up the cooking uh, about, you know, 50-50, although Katie would probably argue it's not 50-50. <laughs> but um, we split up the cooking and the cleaning, and I've just gone into these bad habits, you know, lately where I just leave the dishes and the kitchen untidy for a little bit too long. And, you know, people who live out of home, like, you holler at me. After, like, 75 minutes, when they've been sitting there and it's like they're soaking or whatever, and you, you're through, like, one and a half episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, <laughs> it's just not happening tonight. You know what I mean? Like, these dishes are not getting done. 
And Katie has been in the habit of asking me, hey, babe, would you mind just like before we go to bed, can you clean up the kitchen and, and do the dishes? And my current favorite response is, uh, I just don't feel like it. <laughs> babe, I just don't feel like it. I'll do it tomorrow, okay? Right? And so like I see this in myself. Like there's so many things in my life which I just don't feel like doing. But there's so many things which we need to do. We need just a bit of grit. Like we need a little bit more. Like if our parents' generation was the hardworking generation, who may, maybe they worked too hard, then we're the generation who we're just like, work-life balance. Like I don't feel like it when I get around to it, if it feels organic, right? And it's like sometimes we just need a little bit of a kick up the butt, and it's like we just need a bit of grit. We need a bit of intentionality. We need a little bit of proactiveness. We need a bit of effort in our Christian walk if we want to become the people that God is calling us to be. And that's not preaching works. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And so as we're asking God to change us, as we're walking it out, do we believe that he's sovereign? 100%. Do we believe that he's the source of change? 100%. Do we believe that it's his spirit that's going to work in us to transform us? Yes, 100%. But let's not just pray, oh God, would you change me? Let's pray that and then let's actually try to be different. Rather than praying that and then waiting for that magic light bulb moment when we wake up and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so much holier today. Like my whole life, I've struggled with this thing, but today, God just made me so much stronger. Like, no, let's pray, and then let's get on with trying to change. And yes, we may stumble, and we may fail, and it's hard. Sanctification, growing in our holiness, growing to be more and more into who God's made us to be is not this smooth journey. It's more like, like, you know what I mean? But let's pray and ask God, and then let's put in some grit and some intentionality. So living under grace, it involves an active resistance against sin and an active submission to God. And secondly, grace calls us not only to abandon sin, but also to serve God more. Grace calls us not only to abandon sin, but also to serve God more. And so I want you to note in the passage as Paul calls us to live out our identity, he doesn't just say, hey, sinless. Like, hey, cut that out. Stop doing that thing. No, he says, sinless and offer yourselves to God. Both things at the same time. Get busy worshiping and serving God. You know, there's a story in the Bible uh, of King David, and you guys may be familiar with the story. It talks about how he committed adultery with this woman called Bathsheba, and basically got her pregnant, and then hatched this ruthless plan to basically get her husband assassinated. Super hectic. And the story notes that when this took place, when King David noticed Bathsheba bathing at her house, he was at home idle while the rest of the Israelite army was out partaking in war. 
And so here's the king of Israel, and he's at home by himself, just being idle. Like, not, not necessarily being overtly sinful. Like, he, I don't know if he set out to do something wrong that day. Yeah? But he wasn't serving God. He wasn't occupying his place of responsibility, doing what God had called him to do, which is what kings are supposed to do, by the way, which is to lead your army, to be there with your troops, leading your nation, leading your people. I think some of us might be struggling with sin, not because we woke up trying to be sinful and do all these bad things, but actually just because we're idle, because we're bored, because we're not busying ourselves with the plans and the purposes of God and of building His church and advancing His kingdom. Some of us may be struggling with sin because our strategy is simply to try and sin less, self-denial, rather than to try to love God more and offer more of ourselves to God. You know, I, um, I follow the NBA. Well, yeah, you probably knew that. And um, this, this team over the last couple of years or a number of years ago, the Golden State Warriors, basically from like probably about 2014 to 2018, just prolific offensive basketball team, which to help you understand it if you're not a basketball fan, basically just means these guys, freaking, they get buckets. Like they shoot and it goes in majority of the time. And they have one of the most incredible offenses of all time, scoring super high points every game with a couple of the greatest shooters and scorers of all time. And the commentators would say, you know, sometimes you don't need a great defense. What you need actually is just a great offense. Sometimes the best defense is a great offense. And I wonder if for some of us, living out of our identity in Jesus, living, treating grace as costly would come easier to us, not if we were simply trying not to do things, but if we were busying ourselves with the plans and purposes of God. You see, when you remove something from your life, you have to replace it with something else. So throw yourself into the plans and purposes of God and see how He works in you through that to transform you. Get busy serving the Lord. So secondly, grace calls us not only to abandon sin, but also to serve God more. And finally, in response to grace, Paul says, we offer every part of who we are to God in worship. Verse 13, Paul says, offer, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Every part. As you think about who you are. As you think about what makes you you. And what God has given you. Every part. Everything. Not holding anything back from God. Not everything except for our sexuality. Not everything except for our future home loan deposit or our overseas travel fund. Not everything except for where my kids will go to school, the kind of neighborhood that I want to live in, 
everything. No part of us is off limits to God, Paul says. Offer every part. Our minds, our hearts, our souls, our attitudes, our thoughts, our words, our emotions, our self-expression, our desires, our sexuality, our bodies, our physicality, our relationships, our dreams, our ambitions, our future, our skills, our money, our time. Offer every part of yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. As I close, I've got the band to come up. Have you ever noticed how um, on fire for God new believers are? Like, I wonder if you can think of someone in your life that you know, or maybe it was you, maybe it is you, amazing, who like got saved, came to faith, and they're just so on fire. Like, they put us who have been in the church for a long time to shame because it's like, they're so amazed by grace, they're so moved by the mercy and the love of God that they just give everything to Him. And like, you've been in the church your whole life and you're watching them and you're like, oh my gosh, they're actually taking the Bible, like, they're actually applying it. Like, they're actually taking it seriously because it's so fresh. It's so beautiful. It's so lovely. It's so incredible. It's so amazing what Jesus has done that they can't help but respond by giving Him everything in offering every part of themselves. They can't help but change their entire lives because of this new identity. Uh, In 2019, I was preaching on a study camp for HSC students in Sydney, about 150 year 12 students from across Sydney. And this girl, Tempe, got saved. So amazing. She came to her discussion group leader after one of the sessions and asked. She didn't really know what was going on. She was like, I think it's true. (laughs) What do I do? (laughs) Right? And her discussion group leader led her in this prayer. And she couldn't even articulate what she believed straight afterwards. Like it took a process of weeks and months for her to be able to articulate what had happened. But she was so transformed by grace so transformed by this new identity that she had received, that she'd become aware of, that, of what God had done for her, that everything in her life changed. And I was amazed and encouraged in the following months just to hear about the transformation that happened in her life. Like of how it seemed like she was being a totally different person. She'd become a totally different person. And she committed to going to church She was studying and reading the Bible to grow in her faith. She even helped lead her boyfriend, who was a non-Christian, to Christ. Now they're both Christians. It's like, what? Amazing. That's a life changed by grace. It's a life changed by understanding what Jesus has done, who she is now, and how that then flows out into every area of her life. And my prayer for all of us is that we would recapture that for those of us who who need to. 
my prayer for us is that as we hear these words, and I don't know, maybe this whole unity with Christ and being in Him, maybe that's new for you. Like maybe you're understanding that for the first time today, and that's incredible. But my prayer is that we would live lives that are so radically changed that people can see that Jesus has taken up residence in our hearts, that we have this new identity with Him, that we've died with Him, that we've been raised with Him, that we would rediscover that first love. Like when the gospel is brand new to you and all that you have as a response is amazement and awe and worship and surrender. Because what other response is there? Like what, like what other response is there to that? It's not half in, half out. Like it's not all of my life with all the things that I like and enjoy and don't want to give up, plus a little bit of Jesus light added on top, the 5%. And I put a Bible verse in my Insta bio so people know I'm repping the Lord. No. My prayer is that we would be known as individuals and as a community, not for how on trend we are, not for how accessible church is and the way that we do it, not for how relevant we are, but for how clearly each of us individually and collectively have been transformed by grace. That when people think about Anchor, when they come and they see us, when they visit gospel communities and they spend time talking with us, they don't walk away going, Man, I love Anchor. Those guys are so cool. Isn't it great that they're doing cool church in Sydney? Like, gives all the believers who found church just too, like, archaic and boring somewhere to go where they feel like it's accessible. No, would they say, oh, my gosh, these guys overwhelmingly love God. They off, look at, the, look at their lives, listen to what they say, look at the way they serve and worship and love each other and love us. Look at how they offer everything to God. It's unmistakable that they have been changed by grace. So why don't you stand? I'm going to pray. And let's respond. Our Father... You deserve all the glory because it's you. It's you who've given us this new identity. It's you who has saved us. It's you who has seated us with Christ. It's you who will raise us in Christ on that day. But God, so often we are short-sighted. We have amnesia, God. We know intellectually who we are but we forget in our hearts who we are. And so we need your grace, God. We need your powerful, unending, transformative grace to remind us of who we are, to take us deeper into the depths of who we are in you, Lord, and to propel us out into lives of worship, 
where we're not holding back certain things from you, God, where we're not compartmentalizing, Lord, but where we're offering everything. As you say in your word, offering everything, Lord, to you that we might be instruments of righteousness, God. We don't want to be people who just talk the talk, Lord. We want to walk the walk. So help us, God. Help us, we pray, Jesus. And as we respond now, Lord, I pray that continue to minister to us. Continue to help us, God. Give us a revelation of you because that's what's going to change us, Lord. It's not the persuasiveness of my words or my rhetoric. It's not the emotion that we might feel in the room, Lord. What will change us is a revelation from you, a word from you of who you are, a clear picture and vision of you, Father, in your glory, in your majesty, in your holiness. And yet to see your love for us, your graciousness in that. And so I pray for every person in the room today, Lord. I pray for the things that have been stirred, the things that are on people's hearts and minds, Lord. Don't let us walk away without encountering you this weekend, Lord. Don't let us walk away without doing business with you. Pray all these things in the name of our precious and worthy Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.